Amen. Amen. How good it is to just express the worthiness of the Lamb of God. That's, that's why everything we're about is happening. It all revolves around His throne. And that's what's happening here in terms of our building. How exciting to say a year from now, you're going to have to find new seats. And it's not going to be like airline seats where you're all scrunched up. You can stretch out and, and make room for people who you can invite. And we could say, invite your friends and neighbors. And if like 20% of them said yes, I mean, statistics say like, 60% of unchurched people, if someone who they know and respect invites them to church will come, more than 60%. But if they all did, we could still find room for them for a little while anyway, until they invited their friends. And then we're into church planning right in their own backyard. So praise God. And we're in this series called Up to Code. And it is building on this metaphor that we know for our actual physical building, there are codes that we didn't decide upon but they are tested, tried, and true, and they determine, you know, we've got to have footings that are dug deep enough so our building doesn't jump into some sinkhole sometime when we're worshiping. We've got to have the cross beams supported properly. We, we want to have access. We want to have incredible access for people who are physically challenged and so that they can come in. So all those codes, they're tested, tried, and true, and we didn't decide on them, but we are putting them into practice in the construction of that physical building. But by analogy, it's also important that for our spiritual lives, both individually and as a church, that we are built to the code of Christ. And so the subtitle of this is Discipleship, the Life Jesus Had in Mind. The life Jesus had in mind for us as church, for us as individuals. And the good news of the gospel is not only the incredible mind-blowing news that he would forgive us our sins and reconcile us and take us from being rebels to being orphans who were written in his will— adopted into his family as his children, um, but also that he would call us to live the life that Jesus had in mind for us. And that really is what discipleship is. To be a disciple, if you really want to term it, is to be an apprentice of Jesus. It is to live with Jesus at your right hand, right at your elbow, and to ask him to help you live his life the way he would live your life if he were living the life that you have in all of your opportunities, all your relationships, all the uniqueness of it. And so that's what this series is about. I was struck by a story I heard recently about a man some years ago this happened. His name was Michael Brady. He was a fierce fitness fanatic. He like honed his body and he disciplined everything he ate. Uh, and out of that extreme physical fitness, he became a stuntman for movies uh, the most kind of adrenaline-pumping movies. His specialty was jumping out of a perfectly good helicopter onto a moving train. <laughs> Some guys are saying, whoa, <laughs> yeah. I'll get your adrenaline charge up. And he, so whenever there was a movie part to jump out of a moving helicopter onto a moving train, that was his role. And tragically, one day, at the age of 37, as he was getting ready to do a stunt, he fell from a high place, and he hit his head. And he went into a coma, a coma of which he never awakened. And he was taken to the hospital. And his life then was going to intersect with the life of someone who's a little more relatable to us than him, perhaps. His name uh, was Bill Wall. Bill Wall was a 57-year-old guy who had not paid much attention to his health or diet. He lived a very sedentary life, and he lived kind of as a workaholic, sitting at his desk. And he developed some pains in his chest that he thought were the result of flu. But when he went to the hospital 159 days prior to Michael Brady's accident, they said, you're in irreversible cardiac decline. And we're going to have to put you on a heart machine 
to keep you alive. And we're going to put you on a waiting list for a heart transplant. Now, because Michael Brady was an organ donor, when they determined that there was no longer the possibility of the restoration of his brain, his heart, his 37-year-old fit heart, was implanted in the chest of Bill Wall. And when Bill Wall was told this story, after he woke up from surgery about Michael Brady and how this heart was beating his chest, all of a sudden Bill Wall says, I cannot live the way I used to live. And he all of a sudden became invested in what he ate. He became an exercise fanatic, and he actually completed at the age of of like 59 a full marathon, 26.2 miles. Because he says, I cannot honor the vigor and the power of the life that I have received by living in the old habits and ways. I'm going to be new and different in all of this. And in a very moving place, um, Michael Brady's family wanted to meet Bill Wall. And so after he ran one of these races, they went to meet him. And Michael Brady's dad said, I I know this may seem odd to you, but I brought a stethoscope. And and if you would just let me place this stethoscope on your chest, because I, I just want the privilege of hearing the heartbeat of my son in you. And folks, that that story, I believe, is really what discipleship is about. It's about the heart of Jesus implanted in us and then visibly expressed in both our identity and our gospel-generated behaviors. That is what discipleship is. That's what we are going to be looking at uh, over these days. And the question is, what if our Father God put his ear to our heart? What if he put his ear to the heart of Covenant Church? What if he put his ear to your heart? Would he hear the heartbeat of his son? Or would he hear something else? The heartbeat of his son is not religion. The heartbeat of his son is not moral conformity or even moral uprightness. It's, it's, it's something totally different, and it's, it's forming the life of Jesus in us. I love a quote of C.S. Lewis about this in Mere Christianity. C.S. Lewis says this, It's so easy to think that the church has a lot of different objects, education, building, missions, including services. And he says, The church exists for no other purpose but to draw men to Christ, men and women to Christ, and to make them little Christ. If the church is not doing that, then all the cathedrals, clergy, missions, sermons, even the Bible itself is simply a waste of time. God became man for no other purpose. It is even doubtful whether the whole universe was created for any other purpose than to draw men and women into Christ and to make them little Christ. And we're going to look at a text of Scripture where Jesus called a meeting. He called a holy huddle, and he called this meeting for after he died. Only religious founder, whoever did that. And this was his first meeting after the resurrection. He named the place and the time. Now, Jesus met with his disciples many times over the 40 days between his resurrection and ascension, but he only planned the time and the place of one of them in Galilee on a mountain. And at that meeting, he revealed his heart for his church, what he expects of us as a church and as individuals. And it's in Matthew 28. And Matthew was the minute taker for this meeting. So we have it. And so I want you to revere the Word of God as you hear it read. Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. 
And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now in this text, we have the heart of Christ. And they're really, if in, in, in the original, it's, it's even more clear. There's one central command, and that is go make disciples. There are three other verbs in this passage that are participles or ing verbs that speak of the means by which disciples are made. And this is what Jesus gave, and the church has been at this for 2,000 years and will continue, it says, until the end of the age, until Jesus returns. And it shows us that the bullseye for the church must be discipleship, making little Christ, bringing people to an initial faith in Christ, and that is an event. You're not a disciple of Christ, and you're not a disciple maker, and a church is not a disciple-making church unless it is seen people brought to first-time faith in Jesus Christ, becoming followers of Christ, making decisions for Christ. No church can claim to be disciple-making if they are not seeing converts brought into Jesus Christ. But that's not all it entails. Discipleship is not just the event of placing your faith and life in Jesus through repenting of your sins and trusting in his finished work. But the moment that event happens, there is a process. And that process is becoming like Christ. And that is the task of the church. If we are doing anything that does not relate to discipleship, then we need to stop doing it. Or we need to shape it and make it intentional so that it fits squarely with that. But we don't need to just justify and rationalize it so it fits. I heard the story of a man who who drove past a barn and he saw three small targets painted on the side of the barn. And as he got closer... He saw that each of the targets had a bullet hole that went right through the center of a, of a little tiny target. And he thought, wow, that farmer must be an incredible marksman. I got to go talk to him. And so when he went and talked to the farmer, he says, wow, he says, I saw these bullseyes and I saw that you or someone had fired a gun and it went right through the tiny center of the bullseye in the midst of the target. How did you do that? And he said, well, I painted the target after I shot the gun. And we laugh at that, but you know, so many churches do that. And so looking at the template of Jesus' plan for discipleship, they say, well, you know, we're really loyal to our traditions. We do the target around that. You know, or we we do this well or this well, that well. But Jesus gave us clear instructions here at this meeting. And it is the bullseye for the effectiveness of the church. The aim of the church must be this. And I want to point out also in the aim of the church, the aim of the church is discipleship. The first thing Jesus talks about is himself. I love this in the New Testament. There is never anyone more humble, meek, and lowly of heart than Jesus, but there is no one more insistent on his place of worthiness and glory. You can never find that combination in anyone. Humility and self-assertiveness. But you find it in Jesus, and he begins by pointing to himself. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. I love this. All authority in heaven and earth. What he's referring to here is not just the power to do something, but authorized power. 
And this tells us something about what the aim of the church is. Authorized power, and Jesus says he has all authority in heaven and all authority in history, all authority on earth. Everywhere is his. There's no place out of his jurisdiction. I remember a time I was, I was actually driving to seminary. I was a, a ministry student in, in Philadelphia, and I was coming from Indiana. And I had, I had racked up a, a couple unfortunate tickets for speeding, and I was traveling along, and I noticed, oh, no, there's blue and red lights in my rearview mirror again, somewhere between Pennsylvania and West Virginia. And I was thinking, because I, it made me think of the old TV show Dukes of Hazard with those lights, wondering if maybe if I hit the accelerator, I could get out of the sheriff's jurisdiction or the trooper's jurisdiction and then wave across the boundary. You can't touch me. I'm out of your jurisdiction. Um, but fortunately, I thought better of that because evading arrest and uh, that kind of thing would not be a pretty thing on a seminary student's background. So I didn't do it. But here's the reality. Jesus has authorized jurisdiction of every aspect of our lives. Um, now, I want you to understand, this is not what the gospel... The gospel is about the vertical relationship that we have between God and us being restored. That's the gospel. But the implication of the gospel is that Jesus actually cares about all the broken pieces and aspects of the planet. And as we're reconciling people to God this way, we are also seeking to get into all of the brokenness and to make right what is wrong in our world. Be very clear about that. And so he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, authorized authority. And so I think of, this is part of what discipleship will look like. People who are vertically right with God, who are also bringing that reign, the kingdom. This is what the kingdom of God is in the New Testament. And the kingdom is every place. Jesus claims it all. Uh, one writer said there is not square in, one square inch of all reality that Jesus does not say, that is mine. That is mine. And so all the issues of brokenness, they are ultimately the issues of Christ's claim over that brokenness. Christ's claim over injustice. Christ's Christ claim over anything that is out of sync with his will. That's, that's the role of the church. I, I think of discipleship this way. If, if, if you think of Lincoln Financial Field, where the Eagles play, or any NFL game, you've got 11 players on each team. They're wearing uniforms, and they are fast, and they are fit, and they are generally really well paid. Maybe not for the suffering they endure, but they're really well paid. <laughs> 22 of them. But there's a sense in which they're not the most powerful individuals on the field. While they can knock you down, there's another set of individuals. And they wear a more neutral kind of uniform. They're often in the stripes. They're the referees. And the referees, they can't knock you down, but they can take you out with a whistle and a flag. And their job is basically to bring the rules and orders and ideals of the game of football into reality on the field. And sometimes in refereeing, right, they can even stop the game and they can actually go to an office, you know, uh, of headquarters and, and say, we need to see what you see up here and then we need to rule that reality down onto the field. Are you with me? That's what discipleship is about. It's, it's believers who are bringing the authority of Jesus, heavenly authority, onto the earth. And where the church is discipled, you will see that, and you will see heaven is winning. Heaven is, is expressing itself. You'll see it breaking in and overturning. And, and this is the essence of discipleship. 
Uh, and so there is something, though these referees are, are slower, fatter, poorer, they have authority. <laughs> and as they exercise that, it brings transformation to the whole field. And they sometimes are crossways with this team or that team or the 70,000 fans in the stands. They don't care because that's not their job. Their job is to be in sync with bringing the outside rule book into reality. And that's what discipleship will always look like. So understand that task of discipleship, this aim of discipleship is, yes, the forgiveness of sins, but also the kingdom of God, which is Jesus claims every place for his reign, which means in our lives where we live, work, and play, all of our relationships, all that we have, the strength of discipleship is going to be seen in it breaking out in that way. I love the vision of Martin Luther King, and, and this is from his letter from a Birmingham jail, and he writes this. These words just stir my heart. He says, wherever the early Christians entered a town, the power structure got disturbed, and immediately the power structure of the town sought to convict the early Christians for being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators. But they went on with the conviction that they were a colony of heaven, and they had to obey God rather than man. They were small in number, but they were big in commitment, and they were too God-intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated. They weren't intimidated by the numbers. And they brought an end to such ancient evils, such as infanticide and the gladiatorial contest. But then he goes on to lament. He says, but things are different now. He says, the contemporary church is so often a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. The contemporary church is so often the arch supporter of the status quo. And far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's silent and often vocal sanction of things just as they are. And discipleship means that we take the authority of Jesus and we seek to bring it into play in all of the areas of life. Nothing is safe. We expect Jesus to be a script flipper in our own lives. You know what a script flipper is? It's the person who in a novel enters and all of a sudden the trajectory of the script changes. Jesus is the biggest person in all reality, right? He's very God of very God. You cannot expect to meet him in chapter 8 of your life and just have the narrative go along its merry way. I mean, you wouldn't expect, we know, when people just win the Powerball, their life is disrupted, and we don't believe it, but it's usually for misery. But, but, but he's a script flipper, and here's how he does it. Here's the means of it. His authority is absolute. I love these alls, and I've just highlighted them in this slide. It's all authority in heaven and in history on earth. It's over all nations, and he's building us into a global community. We have to leave our old identity. We don't have ultimate allegiance to the country we're born in or the ethnicity we are. Our ultimate allegiance is to the global church that he is building. There's no organization like this. And we're to make disciples of all those ethnicities into one family. And then it, we're to observe all that he commanded. It's universal for all times, places, and peoples. And then he says, and I am with you always. And the first thing that he speaks of is, is something we might gloss over and miss, but he says the first thing is baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is something that was incipient upon reception, and what it means first and foremost is a, a claim of our identity. 
The claim of the gospel collides with our own identity and it supersedes it. And so to be baptized was really, and again, we often don't place the understanding of baptism that even non-believers do. I've talked to missionaries in Muslim countries. I remember a conversation with one who was ministering in Japan, and they said, you know, family members can come to our church, and they can study the Bible, believe the gospel, begin to make changes in their lives, and their unbelieving family doesn't really mind it and is not offended. But the moment that they are baptized, it's as though all the opposition breaks loose. I, I, I talked to a person who is a pastor now, and they were raised in a Jewish family, and they became a Messianic Jew, a completed Jew, believing that the, the, the Torah and the Hebrew Scriptures spoke of Jesus. And they said their belief in Jesus was not a problem. Their attendance at a Christian church was not a problem. But the day that they followed through on baptism was the day that they went home to find all of their belongings on the curb because it's understood as this identity shift. And so in your identity, whether you had the privilege of being baptized uh, on the basis of covenantal promise, and you had parents who placed that mark and sign and that identity upon you, or whether that is something that you came to later, you were not baptized in an infant, and you came through repentance and faith added to the Lord. We see those two expressions. They really both are this incipient identity, and they mean that we come under the jurisdiction of Jesus and the placement of this sign upon us. And it comes before we're taught. You don't get qualified to be baptism, baptized. The thing that you've got to say is, I'm not qualified. Then we say, good, that's what God works with. You're not qualified, you're not competent, you're a sinner, and you are trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And that's what it means to be baptized. Some of you haven't been baptized and you're waiting to get your life in order. That's not the progression here. Baptizing, then teaching. But it is a powerful mark of identity in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You're changed. That mark of love, that mark of claim. I heard once there was a coven of, of witches and they, they believed in uh, white magic and, and doing things through spiritual powers. I believe these spiritual powers do exist, by the way. And in their ceremony, if someone wanted to join the coven but they had been baptized. They said it created a block. And so they had a ceremony to unbaptize the person. And I don't know what they used, eye of newt and blood of toad and whatever, <laughs> but they took it seriously. They took it seriously because they saw that as, as a claim that until that was lifted, they couldn't bring the other spirits into the person's life. And, and baptism, it starts with identity. And I just, I just want this to be pointed out to us. A disciple is not just someone who adopts a new set of behaviors. The Pharisees had a lot of behaviors that were in line with biblical teaching. It, it, a, a disciple is someone who has a new identity. And you don't outgrow your baptism. You're just growing into it. You, you, your life is now defined by his life. And so baptism is the taking away of the old, the heart of flesh. Colossians 2.11 speaks of like this as the new circumcision. Or, or Romans 6 talks about it as buried with him in baptism and raised to newness of life. But, but the Christian faith is mysterious, not because it's complicated, but because it's so simple as this new identity in Jesus received by faith. And that comes first. I want you to be very clear on that. Because we haven't understood discipleship if we don't understand, first of all, it's the complete transformation of our old identity. And if we don't live with the remembrance of what Jesus did for us every day, then we'll be forced to live with the memory of what we did every day. And that cannot sustain us in joy, hope, and peace. 
So I want you to get that. If you do not live with the remembrance of what Jesus did for you every day, you will be forced to live with the memory of what you did every day or the things you wish you never did or the things you wished you would have done but didn't do. And baptism lifts you out of that realm. And after baptism, he says, teach. And I, and I want you to know how his teaching, he says, teaching them, you put the scripture back up again for me, teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you. Uh, it's, it's not just an intellectual game. Put it into practice. I mean, if you've ever had surgery, I've had surgery, and you talk to the doctor, when you question them about their credentials, you're not going to be satisfied if they say, I got a 4.0 in the class on the particular part of the anatomy I have to operate on you in. That's, that's not going to satisfy you, right? Because you're going to want to ask that doctor, you're going to say, okay, good, I'm glad you did well in the classroom. Let's talk about the operating room. <laughs> have you ever done this surgery before? And if they say, oh, well, you'll be the first, then, you, then obviously you're going to say, no, thank you. I don't want to be the first, right? Somebody has to, but I guess they don't interview doctors the way I'd want to interview doctors. And not only do you ask that, how many times have you done it, but I'd like to know the condition of the patients that you've operated on. How's that working out for them? And Jesus, though he taught, his, his teaching was more like, like a lab. He didn't set up a uh, a classroom as much as a learning, uh, on-the-job training, incremental learning center. And so becoming a Christian, though it is an event, if you haven't turned and know that you've trusted in Christ for salvation, you don't have to know the time, but you do have to know that there's an event where you transfer the trust in your life to Jesus. But, and, but, but salvation, becoming a Christian, is, is not a touchdown. It's just the start uh, of the kickoff. And the rest of it is, is introducing you to putting into practice what Jesus said. And so discipleship is not an upper echelon, second tier level of reality. Everyone who is a Christian, we only find the word Christian used a couple times in the Bible. We find disciple used over 269 times in the Bible. Everyone, if you are a Christian, you are enrolled in Christ's school. It's like, I know, we just sent a bunch of college students off, right? And mom and dad are paying those tuition bills. Imagine if you said to your student, well, how are the classes? What are you reading? What are you learning? And they said, well, I'm not going to class. I haven't bought any books. I'm not doing this because I don't really feel like a student. I'm just enjoying my, enjoying my Big Ten Penn State experience. <laughs> you would have to say to them, no, you are enrolled and you are being a bad student, a disobedient student, a student who pretty soon is going to have a reckoning, right? You can't say, well, I'm a Christian. I'm not a disciple. We read in Acts chapter 11, the disciples were first called Christians because they were so devout that they said, these peoples are possessed by Christ. So they made up a word for them. But to be, to be, which is Christian, but to be a disciple, to be a Christian is to be a disciple. It's not a second tier level of reality. And it means you're being taught incrementally how to put the faith into practice. And this means community and relationships. And while it's good to know, I mean, I want my doctor to have taken courses and textbooks, but I want my doctor to be able to put it into practice, right? And Jesus wants us to be able to put his word into practice out of our new identity. I read about a dozen books. I didn't complete them all, but I, I, I bought about a dozen books about discipleship for this series. And I was mostly disappointed in most of the books. 
Because a lot of them wanted to reduce discipleship into some program that you complete and graduate from. The churches have four-week discipleship tracks or 16 weeks or a particular program, and, and then it seems kind of like you're done. But I want you to realize in the Gospels, Jesus, the perfect discipler, and actually the verb disciple by one individual is never used in the New Testament. Disciples is never used as a verb like, I disciple you. Mm-mm. But Jesus did, okay, because he's perfect. For us, it takes a lot of people and influences. But, but Jesus... He led, his, he led his disciples over a three-year process, breakfast, lunch, dinner, seeing him interact. He, they would watch him, then he would let them do, then they would do with them. Like, like Over that time, over three years, and after three years of being in the presence of perfection, he still had disciples denying him, sneaking off to a back meeting to sell him for 30 pieces of silver, calling down fire from heaven and being frustrated that that wasn't what was happening when that was against the very agenda of Jesus. After three years, this is what was happening. So it's, it's a messy process. And what I, what I see in the Gospels is that to be discipled is there's a lot of failure. But we got to redefine failure, folk. Um, failure in biblical terms, is trying to do something you have never done before and you can't do in your own power, that's good failure. And that's where growth comes from, and that's what God loves. Bad failure is the appearance of smug success that never tries. And I I, I just read a survey that said 90% of Christians live the entirety of their Christian life, and they have never shared the gospel with someone who is outside of the faith. What, What a tragedy. Uh, and so it's putting into practice, but it's not just, again, moral conformity. I'll tell you, um, I know quite a few non-Christ followers who outwardly make Christians appear inferior or immoral. Moral reformation is not the goal of Christianity. The goal of Christianity is a heartfelt love of God, which can only come from a heart transformed by the grace of Christ. When moral reformation is the fuel and goal, the heart is going to just seize up like an engine without oil. Because our hearts are made to run on, on a whole different motivational frame. So, so sometimes people get this, get fixated on wanting a recipe to be you know, placed over their life. Give me the list. Give me the list. I just want you to give me the application. Tell me what I should do Monday through Saturday. Show me exactly how to be a better husband. I'll ask my wife for the list. Or my wife says, I'll ask my husband. I want to be a better father, wife, worker, uh, parent. And, and there's a part of the Bible that refuses to answer that request and refuses to pander to that request because the Bible is not interested in you and me taking parts and pieces of information and breaking it down and compartmentalizing it so that little pieces of our life improve. And yet we go along our merry little way of living, if truth be told, with some changes but we go along our merry way of living according to the same storyline that all of the people in our life who don't know Jesus are living for. And so we get those little snippets of practical application, but we bow down to the same priorities. We have the same idols. We are just as intimidated and and needing other people's approval as they are. We're just as addicted to security and wondering if we don't have enough money to make it through. And we're just as worried and preoccupied in the same way about our health or our appearance, or our loved ones, because we're still stuck in the same storyline, but we've, re- we've received a few tips from Jesus. That's not spirit, kingdom-generated discipleship. Jesus, again, he's that script flipper. You cannot meet him in chapter 8 of your life and still remain the same. And, and so 
having been baptized, you have a new identity, and then you're taught out of that identity to live by faith in the one who has all authority on heaven and earth. All authority on heaven and earth. To all the nations. To liberate us from our more narrow allegiances and say, no, my, my ultimate allegiance, I had the privilege of having lunch with a Christian believer from Iraq. He was Kurdish Christian who became a believer. A great lunch with him. And as I'm having lunch with him and he's telling me his story of faith and he's telling me what he's doing in, in, in his really amazing life, I realize I have more in common with this Kurdish Iraqi Christian believer than I do with neighbors that I easily relate to who don't have accents, who have been shaped by all the same cultural aspects that I've been shaped with. He has totally different background, but he I have this kinship with because I'm part of this global family and he's living out this mission in ways that just amaze me. I hope sometime maybe you'll meet this guy. But what we see is the church does not belong to the ages or even the age it is in or the nation it is in. It belongs to heaven. And our role is to legislate by living out the, the will of Jesus from renewed hearts and new identities and spirit-empowered lives, the authority of Jesus on earth. And you and I were built for that mission. To be a disciple in that process uh, and, and to be making disciples and living it out until Jesus comes. I heard a story about a, a great large ship in Philadelphia. I know it was there when we first came and moved to the area because we saw it. And it was, it was an, designed for military transport. It was designed to transport fast and far um, large groups of soldiers. Soldiers hopefully on a mission to liberate, to free, to protect freedom around the world. But it actually never fulfilled that mission. Due to some budgeting changes and some changes in mission, it actually never ever transported a single military troop or fulfilled a single mission. But it became a luxury liner for excursions and trips, and then it became a museum piece parked in the port of Philadelphia, and it never exported freedom. It just exported some amusement, and it lost its original charter, and it became a curiosity. And folks, that, that can happen to our lives, even going through the outward things. And we say, you know, when was the last time we shared what Jesus meant to us to someone who doesn't know him? When was the last time we started doing something simply because we knew that it pleased Jesus? And though we felt a little uncomfortable or over our heads, we started doing it. Or, or when was the last time when there was something that we've maybe fooled ourselves and said it's out of Jesus' jurisdiction? Or, or we just said, I'm going to just live with this and limp along. And Jesus said, no, I, I want to touch, I want to make that upright. And and he said, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop living that hopeless way. I'm going to stop living in that darkness, and I'm going to let Jesus in. That's, that's what discipleship is. It's heaven's authority manifested in our lives on earth by welcoming that new identity, which we receive by grace, born out of the cross, and then implemented by welcoming everything that Jesus commanded so that we can observe it. Have we welcomed that higher realm into our life? Are we, are we willing that heaven's playbook rule in our life? And I ask you this, if, if the Father were to place his stethoscope on your heart, on my heart, on the heart of Covenant Church, would he hear the heartbeat of his son? 
would he see it expressed in how we live so that his son, the image of his son, were drawn into Christ and were made a little Christ and were drawn more and more so that the heartbeat of Jesus is emanating in us and it is expressing itself outside. That's why we do what we do. That's why the hole is being dug out there for a new building. That's why we speak of small groups to join and where you can implement the application of the word. You can't really grow without others helping you. How do I observe this? How do I put it into practice? You'll know even believers who were doubting, they were doubting Jesus on the mountain. They were visibly seeing him with their eyes. It was a place of honesty where they could share that and come into conformity with it. This is the place of discipleship. So the father puts his stethoscope to our heart and says, I want to hear the heart of my son and see the life of my son expressed in you. That's discipleship. That's our mission. That's the up-to-code life. The good news is Jesus doesn't just forgive us and then send us to heaven, but he gives us the opportunity with our one precious life, our one precious brief life, to commit ourselves to this cause that will matter a million years from now. That's the privilege we have. Let's pray. Our Father, Lord, we pray for ourselves. We pray that you would truly draw us into Christ, make us more like Christ. This is the one thing that's worth our whole allegiance. And it encompasses everything that is worthy and it draws us away from things that are not. And so, Lord, we come to you now. We pray for our community. We pray for our world. It's more fractured, fallen, broken, and beyond what we could ever repair. And it seems to be disintegrating rapidly apart from your intervention, staying the decline. And so we pray, Lord, that you would mobilize us. That where we live, work, play, carry out our lives, heaven would break in. Lord, we pray that in a world that has so much fractured relationships, we would bring your reconciling peace and power. We pray in a world where there's so much death, we would bring life. Where there's so much hopelessness, we would bring hope. Where there's so much disunity, we would bring union. Where there's so much hatred, we would bring true affection. And we pray, Lord, in a world where there is so much unbelief that we would bring faith in Jesus to bear on that unbelief. And Lord, if you would grant that final prayer, bringing faith where there's unbelief, we know that that's the secret that will unlock all the others. And so, Lord, thank you for this calling. Make us true to it. Give us everything good that we might do your will and answer to it. And enable us to sing this closing song with hearts of fresh commitment to live it out. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.